As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today to break down the USA's nil-nil draw away to El Salvador to start World Cup qualifying is a gentleman who never gets startled by fireworks. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, (laughs) if we make the podcast World Cup, if we finally qualify for it, and they play the Arizona anthem, will you get antsy if fans start shooting (laughs) off bottle rockets? Oh, Taylor, you should see me on July 4th. I'm like a dog (laughs) cowering in the bedroom. I can't. I'm just kidding. Fireworks are great. They're actually one of my favorite things. They're so much fun. Anybody who doesn't like fireworks, well, in in most situations, I think, are a little (laughs) bit strange. So what I'm hearing you say is that we should get Gio Reyna, like a red, white, and blue uh, thunder shirt that you can put on the dogs yes. when they do get nervous. And that way, when we have away games, we can put them on the whole starting 11 and then no one will get nervous during the opening anthems. Because that was a sort of maybe statement of what was to come from that crowd. I wouldn't say it was like aggressively hostile until maybe the end when they tried to block the bus from leaving. And I'm not even sure how that resolved. But I think it was definitely an intimidating atmosphere from the start for the U.S., Absolutely. I mean, people being led into that stadium eight or nine yeah. hours before kickoff, that is insane, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that there were actually some people going there at that time. There were a bunch of people there three hours before kickoff. I mean, this is playing on the road in CONCACAF, and it's awesome. In a lot of ways, it's extremely challenging to play in in even more ways, and it, it just made this game fun, at least in one way, whereas the play on the field for the U.S. at least wasn't especially fun. I agree. But I was I was up for it from the start, man. Like they had the flyover. You had Serginho Dust getting bashful because they just stuck the camera in his face for 30 seconds and he didn't want to know what to do because we had those weird like two minutes of silence. Uh, you had players belting out the anthem and, and it really felt like, OK, we're up for this one. It matters. It's World Cup qualifying. And I would say for the first I think we talked about this last night on the quick take for the first like 16 minutes or so. It it was looking okay for the U.S. And I think actually maybe inside the first 10 minutes is where we see them being more dominant, playing the way they wanted to, moving the ball. And then I think they start to get nervous. I think they start to get anxious. And I think more importantly, they start to be more conservative. I don't think that was the tactic. This is my overall takeaway. I think they got more cautious. And in being more cautious, they couldn't just be as aggressive as they needed to be. And then the rest of the game was trying to get back to that initial level of intensity. So, Joe, that's my my read on the opening approach and how it went from there. Uh, agree or disagree on that? Or if you prefer, what did you make of the U.S.'s opening lineup and tactics? Yeah, I'll I'll get to the second part second. I think in response to what you're saying, Taylor, I agree. I think I agree. And it's a little hard for me to tell what changed because I'm not sure the overall attacking approach necessarily changed after the first 10 or 15 minutes. I just think some of the shine wore off. And I I think the passes got sloppier. The U.S. weren't able to move the ball forward as well. In the first five minutes, they get into that right half space, the right side of the box twice in behind El Salvador, or three times actually in behind El Salvador's back line. That's, That's exactly the spaces you want to attack. 
The U.S. didn't get back to that space until the 37th minute, the 36th minute. It was a 30-minute gap before they really were in a dangerous attacking zone and moving forward as a team. And so that's a problem. Another problem was not winning some of those balls in midfield. And duels are a little bit of a weird stat. We don't really know how they're calculated when you see them listed somewhere. But U.S. lost the duels battle in this game, which could be potentially uh, a good representation of the midfield battles that we saw. And I think it matches up with my eye test, at least. Sergio Dest, I thought, and, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, but I mentioned it last night. I thought this was this was a terrible performance from him. I thought he really struggled to find opportunities to come in and win the ball. And when he was in midfield to win the ball, he struggled to actually do that thing. So when the U.S. couldn't take advantage of those 50-50s, they couldn't win the ball and then move it forward. There were a whole mess of issues. Not a, not a terrible result, again, but not necessarily an inspiring performance by any means. Yeah. Yeah, and, and let's let's stick with this then and, and like the idea of what went wrong for the U.S. in those opening minutes, because I agree with you. I don't think it was this just this one thing that then everything spiraled from there. And I also don't think they actively changed what they were trying to do. I think the the kind of attack attacking ideas were there. What I think happened from from my uh, second watch was that you had there's two specific things one is Tyler Adams getting kind of crunched in that 50-50 as he goes to clear off a corner and that seemed to be the turning point for the prior to that the US is knocking El Salvador around they're knocking him off the ball they they are sort of battling for 50-50s and more importantly they're battling for those second balls and for whatever reason Tyler Adams just getting laid out there from that moment on there is less of a, an immediacy to the attack in some of those long balls when they're out for the 50-50s. And then certainly there is a lack of aggressiveness on those secondary balls. And that, Joe, I think speaks to something you were talking about last night in the quick take, which is that the U.S. started to have different identities or different approaches, and there wasn't a cohesive way of playing in this one. And so what I saw was the U.S. from the jump Pretty okay to be vertical if the sequence was on, but if not, they would try to kind of find some passing options. But as the game goes, they start to be more vertical, but they start to do it from deeper. They start to be more static. There's less of a fight for those secondary balls. So now El Salvador can pick those up. El Salvador can fight for 50-50s, and then they can find time and space. And I think the U.S. press... They started to sit off more. They weren't as aggressive. And I think it, it basically ceded control of most of the first half to El Salvador. Yeah, and, and I do think the U.S. had maybe one big macro attacking approach, but the way it broke down into individual approaches in different spaces, that maybe was the part that didn't work out quite as well. Because I think the U.S.'s approach was, we're going to play vertical, we're going to play direct, we're going to play pretty much the opposite of what Berhalter wanted this team to play back when he first took over at the end of 2018 and had that first game in 2019. They looked like a Red Bull team out there. They didn't resemble his Columbus crew team much at all. And, and we've seen that shift happen over the last two, almost three years now. So the U.S. decided to play more direct. Matt Turner wasn't asked to do a lot of playing out of the back, although he had a little bit of that to do. But the U.S. played direct, and when you're not winning those 50-50s, when Dest is stepping in and losing the ball repeatedly in a very short period of time, that's a problem. You can't, you can't execute that game plan at the level you need to to win in a road game in CONCACAF if you're not doing those little things right. And then when the U.S. did move the ball into the final third, into the attacking half, a lot of their passing let them down. And those are the spaces where you can't necessarily afford to play as direct because there's not as much space to play direct and vertically into. So you have to be a bit more precise. You have to play a bit more horizontally. And the U.S. didn't do that very effectively. Part of that, I think, is personnel. Part of that, I think, is field conditions. And part of that is just a lack of execution from the players that were on the field. So if you were talking to somebody who didn't see this game, knew the scoreline and knew that it was like not the worst result, but not the best result, and they asked you, what were they trying to do? What was the U.S. trying to do in attack? What were they trying to do in defense? Joe, if you're giving a broad summary of that uh, in this game, what would it be? What was the sort of U.S. approach in attack? And then what do you think they were doing in defense in ideal scenarios? So I'll start with the defensive portion because I think that was a huge part of this. And we saw it even as early as the first minute. High press right? The U.S. press in that first minute where we're getting the weird, I don't know, basketball style camera angle very briefly or, or yeah. know, sort of NBA 2K-esque, <laughs> yeah. right? When someone messes with those settings that you don't, you know, whatever. When, in that moment, it's Brendan Aronson and, and Conrad and Sergeant pressing kind of shaded towards the left side and they force a poor back pass, I think from Tamakas El Salvador's right back. And it ends up being a corner kick, I think for the U.S. or maybe goes out for a throw and it doesn't matter. But pressing is a huge part of this. And along with the high press was that vertical attacking play. They were trying to go aggressive. They were trying to move the ball forward quickly and bypass 
lines of El Salvador's press. I think those were the main two tenets of this game. And the high-pressing thing I thought worked in a lot of moments. It wasn't flawless, but I thought that was maybe one of the brighter spots for the U.S. in this game. And then attacking-wise, I didn't find a whole lot to like outside of a few individual moments and a few individual uh, maybe players at certain times. But what do you think, like, when Burhalter gave them their final team talk and he was reminding them, like, and don't forget, this is what we want to do, what do you think they were trying to do in attack? Because it did seem like they had consistently numbers very much central. It, it did seem there was a directness to the approach, but with an idea of even if we don't win that first one, we will have the numbers central to pick up the second ball, and then we'll have those fullbacks overlapping to still give us the width. Maybe they can ping in some crosses, or maybe they'll cut inside and shoot. But that that is sort of basically what I saw. What what did you see from the U.S. in terms of how they wanted to attack? It's a little hard to say because okay. I think it's easier to to tell what a team's trying to do when they execute it well repeatedly, and the U.S. <laughs> didn't really do Very that. True. Very but true. I, I will say, Taylor, I think the U.S.'s game plan in large part was we're going to get the ball into our skillful attackers. And I'm thinking about Gio Reyna, Conrad De La Fuente, Serginho Dest. I think those players had a number of touches high up the field in good spots. And then after that, we're going to make off-ball runs in the box, right? Sargent was somewhat active in the box. He had a nice run in behind in the fifth minute, I think, and Giorena slipped him in to that right-sided part of the box. So Sargent was moving a little bit. Brendan Aronson was moving a little bit. The problem for the U.S., though, is that I think everything happened too slowly because you can have the idea to get your wingers and your fullbacks on the ball, Yedlin notwithstanding. You can have that idea and you can say, okay, we're going to make off-ball runs to to allow them, those players to find passing options and, and help us advance the ball. Everything happened too slowly. And so if you're Conrad dribbling, if you're Dest over dribbling, which both of those things happened, then by the time you're done doing your thing and having a good time, Brendan Aronson's not open anymore because El Salvador had time to get back and, and regroup and refine that shape and those opportunities were gone. So I, I think that was part of the attacking game plan. Get the ball to good players, have them either drive and break someone down individually or pass the ball off. But those sequences didn't come together more often than they did. And so I agree with you, and I would say it's kind of confusing because the point there being that like the possession was too slow when they were in uh, El Salvador's half, when they were in attacking positions, it was just too much time on the ball. A- and yet I will say there was another sequence in which they were consistently too aggressive, and I think that was when yes, they were going yeah. vertical. And we talked about this in the preview that we knew El Salvador, like short of abandoning what we've seen from them and going ultra-defensive, we expected them to be aggressive in the press at times and sending numbers forward and making the United States uncomfortable. And I think that was a thing that the U.S. was prepared for and expecting. And I think their way of dealing with that was to recognize that when El Salvador did that previously, it left a lot of space up the field, central and wide. And if you have ball-playing defenders who can find that space, who can find those open players, you bypass a lot of the numbers and away we go. But I think, again, as maybe... Possession slows down and and there's just not as much movement. You start to look for that long ball more directly, and especially when you're starting to get that pressure and feeling uncomfortable. And I do think the U.S. and Matt Turner got more uncomfortable at times in this game, and it's why Matt Turner lets one roll out for a corner kick under his foot. But when the U.S. is looking direct early and often, and there's one moment inside the first 10 minutes where they go down the right-hand side direct three times in 60 seconds, all mm. three of them are either... Uh, out of bounds or headed clear to an El Salvador player who then reestablished possession. Those, it just stood out to me that it was either like too direct or too slow. And you wanted to maybe try to find a better balance of that. But I think instead, as the game went on, they found even less of a balance. I totally agree, Taylor. And I want to add one more thing. Sometimes it was too direct. Sometimes it was too slow. And other times the passing was just sloppy or the players were sloppy before they could even pass the ball. There's a moment in the 49th minute where the U.S. win the ball back in their half and it's Serginho Dest on the ball with a chance to actually do something. And it was a good moment from him. He breaks lines into Josh Sargent, bypassing a bunch of El Salvador players. And Sargent's on the ball in space between the lines. And it's a chance for the U.S. to break forward and drive into the final third with, if not a numbers up advantage, at least a solid attacking situation and Sargent's pass out to Aronson on the left wing is is just poor right it's cut out so easily and the attack is gone there are way too many of those moments DeAndre Yedlin losing the ball uh, at right back and just letting it go out of bounds or, or playing sloppy passes there were moments like that all over the field from player to player to player and so sometimes it was fast sometimes it was slow too fast too slow other times it just wasn't good enough so the big question then, Joe, that I, I will ask you now is when we're talking about all of these 
deficiencies in the way the U.S. not even set up, but just the way they executed, the way they played, the lack of of clear threats. Worth noting, it, it's it's a scoreless draw. It's not as though El Salvador were constantly threatening and the U.S. Sure. were sort of under the cosh. But we are talking about sort of system breakdowns, system deficiencies, and that begs the question, is this a Burhalter problem or is this an inability to execute problem? And I will say, I think, you know, if you're certain segments of Twitter, it's absolutely a Burhalter problem. <laughs> I think this was the players. I really do. I think that from what we've seen this summer, basically my perspective, and I will own this, maybe it's biased, but I think it's earned perspective, is that Berhalter has achieved a lot, and he's gotten this team to play really well at times. He's gotten this team to find results, which is what you want in knockout tournaments. I think he's brought through players. He's obviously done a good job recruiting dual nationals, and at this point, he's earned my trust a little bit as a coach, and so that's my perspective on this. So watching this game, if I'm sticking with, like, I trust Burhalter, which I do, then I look at what went wrong. And I think, to some extent, this was an ego game. I think there was an arrogance to this U.S. team coming in. Again, they beat Mexico in two different finals this summer. You've got players making moves to big European clubs and playing in big European clubs. We've got a ton of players in the Champions League. And I understand for these guys who are teenagers and young dudes coming in to, oh, it's another game. I'm playing for the U.S. No big deal. I can understand how you would think, like, we got this, we're going to dominate this team, this is going to be so much fun, and I think that's why we see that swagger for the first 15 minutes or so, and then once the realities of CONCACAF and playing away, and also playing away against a team who are really well organized and really disciplined and really good, and I won't be surprised if El Salvador get some other big results and maybe get a win or two against some teams that they aren't expected to. Like It's a good team, and I think when you run up against a sort of extreme environment that those players probably couldn't really have prepared for combined with a good opponent who's going to do a lot of things to hassle and make you uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable plus uncomfortable, and it equals overall discomfort. And I think that, again, is sort of where maybe you could put a little blame on Burhalter for not being able to kind of reassert the authority needed and to calm everybody down. I think I have an explanation for why that didn't go well. But Joe, that's my sort of basic feeling on this one. So I am not inclined to blame Berhalter. I'm not even blaming the players, but I think it's more of a failure to execute combined with a little bit of arrogance coming in. What do you think about that? I think failure to execute is a great way to put it, Taylor. I don't have any issue with Berhalter's game plan in this mm-hmm. game, right? You know yep. there's going to be space with how El Salvador play and step forward, and they were doing that in this game. And so playing a bit more vertically is an okay way to break through those lines. It, it's not beautiful to watch, but it, it's fine. And the U.S. had or should have had the ability to win those balls in midfield, and then they had the attacking talent to break El Salvador down. Just those players didn't execute, and we've kind of already talked about that. So I don't have any issues with the general idea and, and, and the the thesis of how Berhalter approached this game, or at least as much as we can see that from what we watched. But I, I do have a slight issue with the lineup and, and how mm-hmm. the left side was structured, and I mentioned that last night. And we can talk more about that when we get into the lineup, maybe after a break. But sure. I, I just... I think it was largely on the players, and I'm not going to read into was the moment too big for them. There, yeah. there certainly is a lack of qualifying experience here with DeAndre Yedlin and Tim Ream being the only two guys that have played in a World Cup qualifier for the U.S. before. But yeah, it just it just wasn't good enough, and this team can be a lot better. And actually, let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. It was good enough to get a draw on the road, but it wasn't good enough for this team to live up to their potential on last night's game. Agreed. Uh, final note before we, we take a break. I really like, can you restate what you said? Like you don't want it to be that like the moment got to them? Yeah, I, mean, I just don't know that we can actually yeah. say that for sure, right? We don't know that the situation was too big. We don't know that they were overawed. It could just be that, you know, they were having a bad game. The field wasn't the best and this is a crazy environment. Uh, yeah, agreed. I think what what sometimes happens is that like when we talk about how difficult it is to go on the road in CONCACAF and how intimidating the atmosphere can be and how big of an impact that can have, it gets, I think, overblown a little bit. I mean, these players have dealt with hostile crowds and hostile fans and drunk fans. Like, it's not necessarily something new. I think when you get other elements, if the grass is left too long, if it's too hot, I don't know if either one of those were necessarily a huge concern. If the official lets stuff go, it all combines. But I do think that if you're having a bad game and you can have this where it's like, ah, that pass wasn't quite what I needed it to be. And then the guy I passed it to, his pass wasn't quite what we needed it to be. And when everybody just seems to be having an off night and maybe somebody would normally make a run and they didn't make it. And then the next time they made the run too early and things just seem disjointed, 
you don't need other negative things factoring in to limit your ability to focus. And if you're getting heckled for like misplacing a pass and you're sort of annoyed with the crowd for a moment because you're not used to that level of intensity for a misplaced pass, you're distracted. You're not focused on your responsibilities as much. And even if it's a 10% reduction in focus, in games like this, that matters. And that is the difference. And so I think you're right that it wasn't that they got overawed more so that there can be just a negative impact to the way you're thinking and processing in that moment. And I think they really struggled to overcome that. But that's what you have to have with youngsters. You have to have that learning moment. You can't always be good. You have to have the moment to then overcome to then continue to improve. When you get something wrong, it's an opportunity to learn. And on that note, Joe, uh, let's take a break. Let's recollect and let's get back to talk about uh, some individual performers, shall we? Let's do it. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe, I think I've done plenty of armchair psychoanalysis. I'll probably do some more <laughs> later on, but let's talk about actual tactics. Let's talk about actual performances. Uh, I think we've gone over the kind of basic approach from the U.S. Do you want to get into maybe some of the individual moments and the individual performers? Absolutely, yeah. Do we want to go through the lineup quickly just so sure. we can have a framework to, to get this going? Okay, I'll start us off. We've got Matt Turner in goal. He started because Zach Steffen, or, or maybe he would have started anyway, but he started with Zach Steffen out with a bit of a back problem. DeAndre Edlin at right back, Miles Robinson and Tim Ream as the two center backs. Sergio Dest at left back, and then in midfield, you've got Adams at the six, McKenney and Aronson as the two eights. Sargent up top, flanked by Gio Reyna on the right mostly, and Conrad De La Fuente on the left mostly. Taylor, when I saw this lineup, I was pretty excited about it. And that didn't really change throughout the game. I think, again, this was largely a good lineup and and an okay attacking approach from Berhalter. The one question that I think a lot of folks had was, why is Tim Ream playing? And Berhalter pretty much answered that in his post-match press conference, saying that John Brooks uh, is is just needing his minutes managed after a long flight and some training this past week. He's likely, if not guaranteed, to start the U.S.'s next two games. Dest at left back and Yedlin at right back, I thought made sense. The one little beef I had was, and we, we kind of tweeted back and forth about this, yeah. was Aronson ending up in central midfield versus Reina being on the right. That felt like a bit of a strange choice to me with Aronson's slightness and Reina's ability to win those 50-50 balls. I think it would have made more sense to swap those and have Aronson out wide and being able to take players on and Geo in the middle. What did you think of that choice? What did you think about this lineup, Taylor? Uh, I really liked Brandon Aronson starting centrally, and I really uh, don't like it for the way I feel about it right now. Uh, because <laughs> I, I thought he, from what we have seen from the way he has progressed from the Union to Salzburg, 
and the expectation is he will continue to progress and make another big move. Uh, it, it seems like he is a player who has a really high soccer IQ. And the way I think of soccer IQ is, is basically coachability. If you go into a new team, how quickly can you understand what they're trying to do, understand what's being asked of you, and then execute such that you can quickly cement yourself as a starter? And he has done that with the union. He has done that with Salzburg. And, and I think then like I expected him to have that level of awareness. And so starting as the number 10 or as a sort of number 10 in this system made sense to me because it's like, yeah, he's a really coachable guy. He's probably grasping what Burhalter wants. He can do little specific things, little specific repetitive patterns that need to happen for the system to function. And that's why he made sense. And then also just, he's got that grit. We've seen him not back down from challenges. I've seen him, as I tweeted, I think like I've seen him win 50 fifties or body somebody off the ball while bringing down a long pass. And it's just like, yeah, that feels like what we're going to need in this game. So all of those boxes were ticked. And then when I watched him, he seemed pretty out of it. He seemed like he was kind of reacting to stuff. And that's not always the worst thing. But I think if you're put in there to be a player who can sort of dictate and control the game, dictate the flow, control the game, and then instead you're reactionary and you're sort of constantly head on a swivel, not because you're trying to evaluate, but because you seem like you're maybe not quite sure where you're supposed to be or what's actually happening in the moment. I think that was, I guess, disappointing is the best way to put it. And obviously it's a really young player. I think this is, this is definitely his first World Cup qualifier uh, and his first one to be away. Like, I'm, again, I'm not saying that that means he, I'm done with him or anything like that. But I think it made sense to me before the, fi- like before the uh, opening whistle. And about 30 minutes in, I was like, okay, I can kind of see why Joe maybe wanted Gio Reyna in there instead. Well, and I think if the U.S. are dominating possession and really controlling the game and building up and having these nice possession sequences, Aronson makes a bit more sense as a central midfielder than he did in this particular game because he was being put in positions where he had to go track and cover ground and win balls in midfield. And I I, I know we see that at Salzburg, but I don't think that's his strength yet. He gets bodied a lot because he is a pretty thin dude at this point. So if the U.S. had had more of the ball and had been really trying to approach this game with a possession, possession, possession mentality, having Aronson's line-breaking runs out of central midfield and having him provide some verticality and some late-arriving runs into the box, I think that could have been great. It just felt like this maybe wasn't the game or the conditions for him to be doing that stuff. So that's that's kind of one issue, but that actually... I guess that's one of my two primary issues with this lineup. And the other one is is something I talked about last night. It's Dest and Conrad De La Fuente on the same side. And I know left back is a problem spot for the U.S. I know Christian Pulisic was left back in Nashville, not unintentionally. This wasn't a home alone situation. But he was left back in Nashville, and he'll he'll join up with the team for I, the next couple of I games. I got really confused from what you're talking about. For a moment, I thought you were saying, like, the last time the U.S. played a game in Nashville, Christian Pulisic <laughs> played left back. And I was like, I missed that. What's that now? Okay, cool. I'm back in. I'm back on board. I understand what's happening now. Yeah, cool. So left back's a problem, and Conrad got the start at left wing because the winger depth is a yeah. little bit thin with Weya and Pulisic not available. But it just feels weird to me to have both of those guys on the left wing because all they do is dribble, right? That's what they love to do, and it's what they're both good at. But it helps if you have one dribbler and then complementary pieces around them. And in a game where Aronson wasn't able to provide much of that, relying, if Dest is dribbling, relying on Conrad to help out, or if Conrad's dribbling the other way around, it just didn't feel like it made much sense to me, and it didn't play out in a way that made a whole lot of sense either. But in the grand scheme of things, those are relatively minor quibbles. It just would have been nice to maybe see some tweaks there. I'd like to stick with Dest for a second because you were pretty down on him last night in the quick take. He was one that I honestly had like didn't have a ton of notes about, so I paid more attention to in the rewatch. And I felt like he was more anonymous than anything. I felt like El Salvador intentionally attacked down their left-hand side and wanted to funnel the U.S. to that side to keep them away from attacking down Serginho Dest's side, maybe in case there was also a Christian Pulisic in there, that tactic makes even more sense at that point. Uh, obviously, there was not, but there was a Dest. But I also think they then tried to spread wide on his side, but then also have somebody near him. So he was constantly having to decide between, do I mark the player more central or do I sprint out at wide? And oftentimes he had to do both at once. And I think we saw him end up being deeper and more defensive and then trying to get into the attack. But what that means is if you're starting from 15 or 20 yards further back or you're having to constantly check and make sure that you're covered before you go, there's less immediacy, there's less spontaneity to your attack. And I think, again, that plays into the idea of being slower in possession. So that was my overall take on him just being not as involved, not as effective. But it sounds like you were more, not negative, but more so like when he was involved, you also didn't see what we need to see from him. 
Well, my beef with Dest is less so on the attacking side, although I don't think he was terribly ah, okay. good in that particular regard. It's more with his defensive contributions or his lack of defensive contributions. I think Dest is one of, if not the primary reason, why the tide turned so aggressively inside the first 10, 15 minutes of this game. That sounds hyperbolic, and I don't mean it to. I, I actually think it might be true. And the signs were there even earlier on in the game. I mentioned some of these moments last night. In the fourth minute, El Salvador have the ball, and Dest kind of creeps forward to get involved in a defensive duel, but doesn't actually end up doing anything, and he leaves Tim Ream isolated. Eight minutes later, it's the 12th minute now, the tides are starting to turn. He gets beat by Tamakas in the 12th minute, like I mentioned, but Ream slides over, but Ream slides over to help. Excuse me. No harm done on that particular moment, but the signs are there. Two minutes later, 14th minute, Dest steps forward to try and win the ball in midfield, but loses that battle, El Salvador playing behind him. Three minutes later, it's a very similar situation that then allows El Salvador to establish possession in the attacking half. And that that's why Dest, I think, was so problematic for the U.S. in this game. Not because in the moment losing a 50-50 battle is a major problem, but because of what happens after that moment. El Salvador then could pin the U.S. in after they'd advanced the ball into the attacking half on Dest's side, and then they could pass the ball around, which they can do quite well. They weren't dangerous really in the final third much in this game, but some of Dest's defensive deficiencies, and some of these same same things apply to Yedlin on the right side, but some of these problems from the U.S., especially with Dest, allowed El Salvador to gain control. The U.S. lost control, and that made it harder for them to find attacking moments and create chances for the U.S. in this game. I suspect the Yedlin conversation will be equally lengthy. So let's stay with Serginho Dest for a moment. Joe, like, as we do with the weekend review, we watch players, we try to look for the little things that either we haven't seen previously or we continue to see either positively or negatively. With that in mind, the I would I think it's a safe assumption we will continue to see Serginho Dest starting for the U.S. men's national team. We're not sure at which fullback spot, but at one of them. What is the thing that you would like to see from him in the next game or couple of games that makes you feel like, okay, he is kind of like doing the defensive thing he needs to do. He is getting his positioning better. What's like an obvious thing that you want to see in those opening few minutes against Canada? Effort. Man, effort. I feel like that's the biggest thing missing. There's a moment, I think it's in the 30th minute, and I didn't write this down because it felt a bit harsh, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Dest is in a 50-50, and he kind of gets bodied a little bit, and he goes down. I think he had the ball before this happens. Yeah. He goes down, and, and he was looking for a foul, right? He grabs his knee or his ankle or whatever, and he sits there for a full minute. And the reason I didn't want to bring this up is because I don't know what he was feeling in that moment. Maybe he was legitimately hurting, and I don't want to make light of that. But what gives me some pause here is like 60 seconds later, after he's had his time, on the ground after El Salvador have already had an entire attacking sequence he gets up and he runs like he looks like he's fine I mean it's it's moments like that it's defensive moments where he's just not even really trying to go in and win the ball as far as my eyes tell me that's not okay right you can't have a defender in a World Cup qualifying game just not out there trying and Berhalter seemed to recognize that in some of his post-match press conference comments I think he's going to start against Canada and if he plays like this again defensively the U.S. is going to have some problems because of Serginho Dest, and that's that's not good. And, and I think, to your point about like the fight, the intensity, that's what I think the halftime talk was primarily about. And that because when the U.S. comes out for the second half, they are just scrapping for everything. They're getting stuck in. They're you know leaving a foot behind. They get they pick up a yellow here and there. And I think you see that intensity increase. But then Burhalter in his post-match press conferences, uh, post-match comments again, the one I saw from Charlie Bohm, my distillation of it was essentially like we needed to fight more and be up for the game. We got up for the game and fought more in the second half, but now we need to learn how to play. And I and I had like and what I think that second part means is basically that they focused so much on winning battles and getting stuck in that they stopped remembering that you have to do that, but then also play your game at the same time, and that is the kind of veteran experience that you have to develop over time in qualifying. That's what Clint Dempsey is so good at. Clint Dempsey is good at, you know, getting into it with people, like doing the mind games, having that swagger, but then backing it up by continuing to play. You can't lose your focus on how we want to attack and possess because you get into it with somebody. That's literally the point of CONCACAFing and head games. And I think the U.S. went one direction that maybe Burhalter did not want them to go. Yeah, man, it was it was rough in moments, right? And Dest was a big part of that. Can we have the Edlin conversation yeah, quickly, Taylor? Yes. Uh, Edlin will be overshadowed by Dest in a yeah. fairly understandable way. 
But I thought he was very poor as well. And it made it hard for the U.S. to sustain possession when both of the fullbacks were minuses defensively and in the attack. Yedlin was beat inside the first 10 minutes. And thankfully, he had Miles Robinson over there to cover for him, who I thought put in a great defensive shift. Not a great Mm -hmm. offensive shift, but we can separate those two (laughs) things just fine. Yedlin was beaten defensively in the first 10 minutes. He got cooked by Alex Roldan in the 33rd minute after a short corner kick. He lost the ball out of bounds. He misplayed passes. He was a bit of a black hole on that right side, and it it had me thinking of that away game to Canada back in 2019, I think in Nations League, when the U.S. lost that game up in Toronto, I believe it was, and Yedlin was playing right back, and he was just out of it. And and he was one of the two players, as I mentioned, who had previous World Cup qualifying experience, and it it didn't show for me, Taylor. No, and I think you see his rustiness. That was a concern with Yedlin that he wasn't getting consistent minutes with Galatasaray yet this season. So is he going to come in as sharp as we need him to be? And I think the resounding answer is no. When I mentioned that the U.S. gives it away on that right-hand side three times inside of a minute, two of those were Yedlin. And it wasn't always like the long ball down the channel that sometimes will work and sometimes it doesn't. It was literally like trying to play into the feet of Gio Reyna and miss hitting it by five yards. And And that's just not a thing that you can afford to do in World Cup qualifying, but certainly when we, if and when we make the World Cup, I should say. Uh, and I think the reason, another reason why I think this result for me was more so disappointing in the end is just that it was a missed opportunity. And and fundamentally, I think that's what this game is. It's it's a series of missed opportunities because there's an argument that if Yedlin comes in and, and just looks lights out and does his defensive job but still contributes to attack and is able to keep possession and string some passes together and Dest looks sharp on the other side... We've got some answers to our back four. Uh, I think Brendan Aronson starting centrally. Like, if that went well, we have another option there. We've got some more depth there. I think if Josh Sargent had a really, really strong game and we saw some development in him and some things we haven't seen before, we could have come away from this game being like, okay, I've got some things from Josh Sargent that I feel like we 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 are seeing him develop into the striker we need him to be. We've got Brendan Aronson, who's a central option. We've got DeAndre Yedlin, who can be the starting right back. Oh, man, we got a ton of answers. And at the end of the day, I feel like I have... As many questions, if not more, than I had heading into this one. And Yedlin is still one of those questions as to how does he fit in. But it's less of a he definitely fits in and more of a we're sure he fits in, right? Well, there's just a big fullback problem for the Canada game now, right? This was, like you're saying, Taylor, this was a missed opportunity to learn things. And even more than that, it was a missed opportunity for us as fans and and media, but more so for Berhalter to feel confident about some of these teams and some of this team in particular pieces of this team headed into Sunday's game and then Wednesdays after that. I mean, the fullback situation is now a huge question mark, right? Dest, I think, will probably shift over to right back for the next game and Yedlin will be dropped, but that's not a position now that the U.S. is feeling particularly comfortable about. Left back has always been a question, and now with Dest over to the right, most likely, it will continue to be a question. You mentioned Sargent up top. He wasn't very good in this game either. Didn't make uh, a ton of really impactful plays. Sometimes took too many touches in hold-up play and, and just wasn't a big positive for the U.S. in this game. So do you start PFOC against Canada? He, to me, feels like a player whose skill set's better suited for him coming off the bench. Do you start Pepe? That feels really unlikely. There are there are questions about this team, and it would have been nice if we'd gotten some answers, but I guess we'll question for another few days, Taylor Rockwell. Well, let's pause on that one, and then let's come back, continue to talk about individuals, but then let's look to that Canada game, what we think Canada will do, what we want to see the U.S. do, and maybe try to find some uh, positivity as we as we head out to the next qualifying game. That sound good, Joe? Absolutely, Taylor. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, listeners, welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we're going to keep talking about some individual performances. We will say some positives because I think there were... A couple, literally a couple, uh, <laughs> positive performances from this one. But yeah, we started talking about Josh Sargent at the end of that, and I think we have to continue it here because there were players who looked better in that spot this summer than others, and I think Daryl DK was one that I really thought was going to be in this conversation, didn't have the Gold Cup we wanted, and so again, it felt like the door was open for Josh Sargent to come in and really say, I am the starting striker, this is my job, I do everything that's asked of me. And Matt, Do- Matt Doyle... I think tongue-in-cheek, because it's Matt Doyle, said if Jossie Zardes starts this game, a fully fit Jossie Zardes probably scores two. And I'm sure there's a tongue-in-cheek trolling element to that. I also think that, like, right now, Berhalter might choose Jossie Zardes over Josh Sargent. Because I think Zardes understands what's being asked of him, understands the system, and executes it in a much more fluid, consistent way. And I honestly think Matthew Hoppe does as well. I think we saw him dropping in this summer and the way he's mobile and trying to probe for space and has that sort of, I'm going to make something happen mentality. I have to believe Burhalter likes that, even if sometimes he goes a little bit overboard with it. But I contrast that with Josh Sargent tonight, where it, it just, I said in the quick take that I remember that moment where he, I think I described it as like gets fouled, and then miscontrols, thinks the foul is coming, it doesn't come, and then from there I wanted to see how he responds to the overall game. Watching it again, I had a more charitable understanding of that moment, because what actually happens is Sargent is played in, there's a basically like a little bit of a tug, a professional tug, what any defender is going to do, and it throws Sargent's rhythm off, so when he goes to then make a touch, he basically miscontrols it, and the ball rolls away, El Salvador got possession, and he sort of sheepishly jogs back after it and from there I didn't see him I I saw him contesting the long balls and I think that's the kind of bare minimum of what we need to see from him but I did not see him making the runs moving the way we've seen other strikers in the depth chart do and other attackers do that helps facilitate attacks and helps open up space I, I, I thought again this is a pretty big missed opportunity Yep, I'm I'm a thousand percent with you on everything you just said, Taylor. I think if Josh Zardes is healthy, if he didn't start this game in this alternate reality, he's starting against Canada, right? And that is a little bit of an answer to that question. In in, in a way, that is a positive, right? We know that Josh Zardes can get the job done in his own way, and hopefully, we'll get to see that in the October window, and we'll get to see that in the next batch of qualifiers. We're just not going to see it anytime soon because, yeah, Taylor, I'm, I'm with you. Sargent wasn't especially good. I thought PFOC looked better. I mean, it wasn't night and day necessarily, but I think PFOC had some good moments. He was able to drop in and link play maybe a bit better. Not that Sargent was wholly bad at that, but yeah, I mean, uh, we're lacking. Uh, okay. All right. We're lacking. Uh, <laughs> we're lacking answers, Taylor Rockwell. We're lacking well, answers. I uh, no, I think the uh I was making was that I think Peafock was definitely better at dropping in and holding a play. And I think he still had his loose moments and his moments of frustration for Burhalter. And I'm not saying that I think like Josh Sargent is a bad striker or going to be a bad striker, but I think he doesn't tick the boxes that Burhalter needs that position to tick. Uh 
We talked about Tyler Adams in the weekend review. You and I texted about this a little bit before we started recording. One of the things I mentioned, and I can post the tweet uh, somewhere after we post this show, basically that like it, it was a moment when Tyler Adams gets the ball. It's being played from like the left-hand side defensively into his feet, and he turns as he receives it really, really fluidly and then plays a ball forward centrally and splits two defenders. And it's just, it's just tidy work of two touches, very simple, turn under pressure, play a ball forward, and now the ball has advanced 40 yards in three seconds. And... That I, I, it felt weirdly faded because last night there was an almost identical moment there of the ball. I think it's Dest ends up playing it into Adams' feet. Adams makes that same turn and then basically has to just stand there and then has to dribble back towards the, the sideline. And I think he ends up trying to force a pass central and it gets blocked out for a throw in. And he immediately turns and starts having pretty aggressive conversation. I'm going to guess a fairly one-sided conversation with Josh Sargent. Because Sargent is clearly supposed to drop into that central space. And if he had, there is a giant gap there. That's the opening that we talked about with El Salvador. When they crowd numbers to one side and push numbers forward, you can find space. And if you get the ball into feet in that space... You've got control. And Sargent does end up showing, and that's when Tyler Adams tries to force the pass into him. But by then, it's not uh, kind of with a couple yards of space and an opening to play an easy ball into feet. It is Tyler Adams dribbling out of bounds while trying to shield himself from a defender and then forcing a pass with his non-dominant foot and not even being sure if that passes on and it ends up getting blocked out. And if, if Josh Sargent is more immediate in that run, and maybe he can be with more experience, that ball goes into his feet, he turns, and away we go. And that tended to be what I saw from Josh Sargent last night, was just the, he needed to make that run a second faster, a half second faster, sometimes multiple seconds faster. And I think got a little bit lost in when he was supposed to be stretching the back line and fighting for 50-50s versus when he was supposed to be linking up, and even sometimes when he was supposed to be pressing. I think it was an erratic performance from the United States, and given that he, I think, is in an already uncomfortable situation... When the rest of the team isn't comfortable, he's not going to look better as a result. He will likely look worse, and I think that was kind of the case last night. Can I shift us to a positive, Taylor? Yeah! Is that all right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk Gio Reyna, man, because I thought he was not flawless. Let me get that out wondering. up front. Mm -hmm. But I thought he was really good. Probably the U.S.'s best and brightest player last night. I think I said on the Quick Take Hot Take, if we had cloned him and had three more, I would have started both at left wing and right wing and then the two number eight spots in front of Tyler Adams. He fought for the ball in a way that made Serginho Dest look even worse, right? It, it just was polar opposites, right? Gio Reyna, there's a moment in the 26th minute where the ball comes into his area. He's fighting for it. He ends up going to ground, and he still wins the ball. He's fighting with an El Salvador player, and he's on the ground, and Gio still comes away with it and helps the U.S. win possession, I believe. I think just for a brief moment, but still... Those are the kind of 50-50s and, and even 2080s that Gio Reyna can win, and he did some of that stuff last night. Then in possession, I thought he was one of the brighter players. He didn't he didn't dominate by any stretch, and he didn't he, he overhit a couple of through balls into the box, but he was looking for those things in a way that I don't think many other U.S. players were. He still had some nice through balls into the box, even with the ones that he overhit. His set-piece delivery to that Miles Robinson header in the ninth minute, the eighth minute, something like that, was really good, even if the set-piece he delivered a little bit later from a similar area wasn't quite as good. I just thought, by and large, he was bright, and the U.S. needed more players like Gio Reyna out there, which is kind of a, a, a freezing cold take. Um, it, no, I think it's a great take, honestly, because I think, first of all, any anything significantly positive is a great take. Let's start there. <laughs> but second, Joe, you've actually made me wonder, if you're looking at this lineup for a moment, who are the players you think are coming from teams that are high intensity, high tempo, like we got to press high and then we got to move the ball really, really quickly? Who are the players that play in those systems that we saw in the starting 11 last night? Because I would argue it's Gio Reyna and Tyler Adams. And I guess yeah. Brandon Aronson for Salzburg. Yeah, I'd say Conrad and Gio and, and Adams and, and Aronson. And I don't know about the rest. McKenney sort of, but Juve don't necessarily press a ton. And, and Dest kind of in a similar situation. They will press because they play for these giant clubs that have tons of money. And that's kind of what those teams do. But yeah, Conrad, Aronson, Reina, and Adams for me for sure. Yeah, because I think of Juve and Barca as both teams that expect to be ball dominant. That sure. aren't trying to like capitalize on space really, really quickly. They can do that, but it's not like the end-all be-all. Sargent with Norwich, I think, is going to be a more reactive team this Agreed. season. And so I then look at this game again and realize that maybe that's part of the disjointedness, that if you've got 
four players, three players who are used to a very high tempo. We got to like, like one and two touch passing, keep the ball moving. Everybody step, everybody play aggressive. I do feel like that is more what Burhalter wants. And so maybe that's also part of it is there's just rustiness of the players have to kind of get back into the swing of things with that tempo. And maybe we will see more fluidity against Canada. And I think Gio Reyna continuing to keep that tempo up and Tyler Adams doing the same will only help with the U.S. Just move the ball faster, string some passes together more quickly. Yeah, no, and that's I think that's much needed. And, and stringing those passes together in still a calm way, right, without being mm-hmm. frenetic and without overhitting balls or without rushing passes and missing obvious passes. There's moments in this game where Weston McKinney uh, has the ball, and this is before he takes that shot that goes way, way over uh, the goal yeah. line and just out into the stands. I imagine it's late in the first half. And instead of doing that, he had a wide-open Gio Reyna on the right side of the box. And Gio Reyna was looking for the ball and was visibly disappointed, not necessarily angry, but disappointed that the ball didn't come to him. So they need some measured attacking play, but having some urgency doesn't hurt this team at all. It doesn't. And and nor does positivity, Joe. So let's, (laughs) as we move towards the Canada game... Uh, I would like to, unless you have any other individual things you wanted to talk about, and I think we praised him, Reem. I thought Miles Robinson was very good defensively. I thought Matt Turner was another maybe missed opportunity player where he, if he were, not that he did anything bad or conceded an easy goal, but just we didn't see as much of the distribution there. There were some shaky moments. I mentioned in the quick take, there was the kind of frustrated conversation with Tyler Adams about playing it short versus when to go long. So I, I there's... Other names that we could mention, we didn't talk a ton about Weston McKinney. A- anybody that you feel like we should spend some time with before we move towards Canada? Not really. Weston McKinney I thought yeah. was okay to mediocre uh, in most moments. Miles Robinson, defensively good. Tim Ream overall good. I actually think Tim Ream was excellent given my expectations for him. No major mistakes, and that's great. And other than that, Adams... Adams covered a bunch of ground. He wasn't as effective at winning the ball as I hoped he would be. There were a few moments where he was beaten and he was having to do a lot, especially to cover for Dest. But no, I think we've hit we've hit most of the big line topics here, Taylor. I think my 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 like from top to middle in terms of stronger performance is Adams and Ream are kind of like the top tier. Maybe Rain is in there as well. You've swayed me with that one, Joe. And then probably Robinson, then Weston McKinney and Conrad De La Fuente, and from there it drops down. So I think there were positive performances, and I think the thing that I would like to remember then is that this is the start of World Cup qualifying. I think the number that I saw was nine of these 11 players are making their World Cup qualifying Mm -hmm. debut, and to do so on the road in a hostile environment, in a difficult environment, in a new environment. I think we can... Remember that as we talk about this team, we can also remember. Did you see the graphic about uh, like records in World Cup qualifying, Joe? I didn't. Uh, Hami, uh, Jaime Macias, uh, I think it is. Yeah, Jaime Macias, apologies there on Twitter, uh, created this graphic and it was basically last away win in World Cup qualifiers. And it was each team uh, currently participating and then the last time they won away to the teams that they'll be playing. Uh, and I think the last time, let's see, the last time the U.S. beat El Salvador was in 2004, it seems to be. Um, and uh, it was a 2-0 win, but you don't get a ton of wins on the road. And when you go back and look, those numbers start to get smaller and smaller. Like, I think the last time we beat Canada in World Cup qualifying was 97. The last time we beat Honduras was 2009. The last time we beat Jamaica was 2013. Like, you don't get a ton of wins in qualifying. We certainly didn't last time round. So I think to see it as the start of qualifying We had some questions going in. We got a couple answers, and we have more questions coming out, but those can be answered with two remaining games, as you pointed out on the quick take. Joe, we've got two games instead of just the one. So if, come the Honduras game, we end up getting two wins from from the Canada-Honduras games, and we do have some players sort of answer some questions, this becomes a building block as opposed to a misstep. That's kind of my broad feeling uh, as we move towards that Canada game. No, I'm with you. The sky is not falling, right? Yeah. The U.S. didn't play well in this game. That's not particularly surprising on the road in CONCACAF, like you mentioned. It's still disappointing, though, right? You want the three points. A point is okay, still. It just doesn't give you that breathing room that you wanted for the rest of the window, right? It puts extra pressure on the Canada game. It puts extra pressure on the Honduras game. Yes. And that's not exactly where the U.S. wanted to be, but that's where they are now, and it's up to them to figure out how to navigate this situation. 
I'm going to ask you a difficult question because I don't know the answer to it either. Uh, I, I agree with you about the extra pressure. And I also then wonder, do you think we're less likely to get experimentation in this game? Because there were, I think if we go to El Salvador and it's an unimpressive 1-0 win, but we see them sort of execute the game plan on a fundamental level, maybe there's some flaws there, but we see that they're capable of doing it. I, I think it stands to reason that against Canada, he changes it up and tries something different because not that it's time to experiment, but just that we've seen him play with a back three against Canada uh, in the Gold Cup. We've seen him try different things at different points when the situation calls for it. Do you think we'll get some differences against Canada or do you think because El Salvador wasn't as strong of a result, he'll want to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page, understands the primary responsibilities before we move into tactical wrinkles? I think a lot of the changes were pre-planned for this game, right? No John Brooks, no Christian Pulisic. I would expect both of those players to start in the next game. And maybe we'll see a change to a back three, right? But I wouldn't even necessarily call that experimenting at this point in Baralther's tenure because that's become like the secondary shape that the U.S. uses. And they're, they're relatively comfortable in that shape. So, yeah, maybe we'll see some different players at the nine or at fullback just because of this result. And more than that, the performance. But I don't know that there's a ton to experiment with, to be honest with you, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what what about Canada then? What are our expectations for them? Joe, I know you watched a little bit of uh, their game. Last we saw them, they were in a 3-4-1-2 against the United States. Is that roughly the shape they're still going with? Uh, John Herdman tweaks it a little bit from game to game and even from moment to moment, okay. right? Because in that Gold Cup game, Canada started in a back three and then they shifted to more of a 4-4-2 uh, 30 minutes into that first half. So last night against Honduras, they changed their shape from moment to moment like a a lot of modern attacking teams do. They possessed in a back three, and then they shifted into more of a 4-4-2 block defensively. They controlled possession against Honduras. They looked... They looked dangerous in the attack at times. They also looked vulnerable defensively. And I think the U.S. should be licking their lips in a, you know, not weird way as much as that's possible against some of these <laughs> yeah, Canadian center backs. I hear what you're, I, you're advocating <laughs> cannibalism. We all heard it. It's fine, Joe. Okay. I appreciate that. As long as everybody's yeah. cool with that, I'm just going to rock mm-hmm. with that metaphor. Yeah, it's, that's not a problem. The center backs <laughs> in, in central, <laughs> central midfield were a bit vulnerable for Canada last night. And that can change slightly depending on the personnel. They have players who are capable defenders in those spots. But Honduras found some space. Tejon Buchanan is a bit of a defensive vulnerability when he's tracking back into the box. The U.S. saw that in the Gold Cup game. That's where the first goal came from for the U.S. That's also how Honduras got their goal in this game after Andy Nahar uh, beat Tejon Buchanan in the box and drew a foul to earn that penalty for Honduras. So there are weaknesses here for the U.S. They're likely going to mess with the shape a little bit over the course of the game. They'll probably play in a back three in possession, shift to a back four defensively, although that that could be a little bit different depending on the game. But overall, that's what I noticed from Canada. And I think the U.S. has every chance and should expect to win this game at home. They kind of need to win this game, Taylor. Uh, and against Canada in the Gold Cup in that uh, back three when they were in it, it was Zimmerman, Sands, Robinson. It could theoretically be all three of them again. Uh, I have to believe that John Brooks will start mm-hmm. this one. I agree with you. And I think Miles Robinson keeps his place. If we did go back three, do you think it's James Sands as the other one? It's probably Walker Zimmerman. I know I said James okay. Sands back before this window started as my center center back, but I think the experience that Walker Zimmerman has, not necessarily in World Cup qualifying games, but just as a pro and at the national team level and his performance at the start of the Gold Cup, I think Berhalter's likely going to trust him more. I don't know if he plays in the middle or on the right side of that back three or maybe on the left side if Brooks is in the middle. I don't know how you line those players up, but if it's three center backs, I bet it's Robinson, Zimmerman, and Brooks. Let me ask you this. So if we have our strongest possible 11, if you are constructing your strongest possible team, Joe, and you are going with a back four, I think I have questions about like, is it Dest at right back or left back? Who can be the striker? Those are the kind of like bigger picture question. A weird one I have that's not necessarily a negative. I just don't have an answer to it is who is the third central midfielder in your ideal strongest 11? Because I think it is Tyler Adams as the kind of single pivot. It's Weston McKinney. Also with him and then occasionally joining him to be a double pivot. And that opens the question of who is that other one? And we saw it be Brendan Aronson. We've seen it be Sebastian Legette in the past. Uh, It could be maybe it's Kellen Acosta and Weston McKinney moves over there. If you're constructing your ideal midfield three, Joe, who is that third name? (laughs) Eunice Musa cries that Eunice Musa isn't here. Uh, But 
I don't think that's where I mean, Peralta is, is. But for okay. me, it is. For me, certainly it is. Absolutely, Yunus Musa. I think he's yeah. good enough. I think he is the highest upside number eight that the U.S. has, maybe outside of Giorena. But I think, you know, Giorena needs to be in all places at all times. So that's not realistic. But Yunus Musa's not here, right? He's just getting back in with Valencia over in Spain. So in this particular group, it's the exact same player that I had before this. This uh, I keep wanting to say tournament, but before these qualifiers started, it's Kellen Acosta. He's not as smooth on the ball in tight spaces, and he's not as good of a progressive passer and a chance creator as you want him to be. And But a lot of those same criticisms go for Sebastian Legette as well. So I take Acosta in a game like this where you prioritize controlling the midfield and winning those balls like we didn't see the U.S. do as much last night. I'd rather have Acosta in there than Legette or than Aronson because I think he eats up more of those balls and helps the U.S. play the way that Brother seems to want them to, which is aggressive, up-tempo, maybe to a fault at times, and, and high-pressing. I think Acosta can do that job. What about as your number nine for the Canada game? Who would you like to start there? Oh, Taylor. Uh, this mm-hmm. is like asking me to choose between three things that I don't, I'm not excited about. I was trying <laughs> to think of something that wouldn't be mean, and then I, it, it went too far. I'd probably go... With PFOC here, I know I said that his skill set I think works better off the bench, but I'm not sure you have a lot of better options. I wouldn't start Pepe, although if he does, I'll be excited and curious to see how he does. I I think Sargent has lost that spot for me right now. I'm not trying to be overly reactionary, but it might be time to give PFOC a run and, and give him a chance to start a game. Yeah, I, I, I won't be honestly won't be surprised if it is Sargent and he's given another opportunity, having now gotten the game away. To, to show that he can do a few more of the specific things. And if he does, maybe he stays in there. I also, to your point, won't be surprised if it is Pifak because he, like, why not see what he can do from the jump against Canada? And maybe he continues to hold up play, but now he gets in on the attack more and maybe things work out. My other question is, like, would you like to see, if nothing seems that convincing, would you like to see the United States just go full Pep Guardiola and have it be like Gio Reyna central and Christian Pulisic on one side, Conrad De La Fuente on the other, or Brendan Aronson as a more wide attacker, and then it'd be like Aronson, Pulisic, Reyna, and you've got this sort of interchanging, rotating, super mobile front three? Sure, yeah, and I think the Canada game is an okay game to try to be a bit more possession-oriented, which, again, I would argue is not a big change. It's not a big bit of experimentation. It's just a tweak from game to game. I think the U.S. is going to have a chance to control the ball, and they should be able to do that against Canada. They really weren't able to do it in the Gold Cup, but hopefully this is a time where Christian Pulisic and Giorena can find space and come inside centrally and combine and interchange. It's an opportunity for whoever are playing, whoever is playing in those eight spots to get on the ball and, and actually make things happen. I think we should see some of those things in this Canada game, and we'll see even more of it likely, maybe in a less beautiful way against Honduras, because Honduras is going to sit back, they're going to play a 4-4-2 most likely, and they're going to try to counterattack. So the U.S. is going to have possession, and they're going to need to do some good stuff with it if they want to win that game. I gotcha. I, I, I may have, like, Misexplained, but I think what I'm saying is like, would you like to see basically instead of a conventional striker like Gio Reyna playing as the oh. nine instead of Sergeant or Pifak? That's what I'm saying. It's like I don't think that will happen because I don't. That seems like a gamble too far for Berhalter right now. But it also seems like something that as we continue to be like, well, maybe it's this guy. No, it's not him. Maybe it's this guy. No, it's not him. Like it seems to be this cycle of it could be him, but nobody is really staking their claim. Do you think like there's an argument for, well, then let's try somebody completely unconventional and maybe it's like a false nine. Maybe it's just an interchanging. Nobody's a central striker, but we just get numbers around the ball and have quick passing combinations. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if it comes to that, <laughs> I don't have any issue. Yeah, right? why we've, not? we've already seen Baralter do that <laughs> yeah. with Sebastian Legette in November 2020, I believe. And there was a whole big debate about that. And we don't need to un- unscrew mm-hmm. that can of worms or unopen. We don't need to open Fine. that can of worms. That's, Taylor. That's, That's how you open a can. But. I mean, if if worst comes to worst, sure, let's give it a shot, man. I don't I don't think the answer is there yet. I don't know that we've seen the answer at the nine spot just yet. At least last night we didn't see it for the U.S. So I'm open to any and all avenues, Taylor Rockwell. And last question, I think for me, uh, how terrified should U.S. fans and the U.S. team be about uh, Canada's wide options? And what would you like to see the U.S. do to kind of nullify those? Oh, real scared. They should be yeah. real scared, uh, a little bit terrified. Um, as far as how the U.S. are going to – I mean, how do you nullify Alfonso Davies? How do you nullify Tejan Buchanan? I mean, Buchanan's easier than Davies. But I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, Taylor. And I have real concerns about that after seeing how the two fullbacks defended for the U.S. against El Salvador. I don't know what the solution is going to be. It's going to need the wingers to track back. It's going to be a team-wide effort. It can't just be on those particular fullbacks. But it's not going to be easy. I don't have a great solution for how you do that other than pin them back, try to be the one controlling the ball and and start well and get on the board. 
and bringing it home. Uh, like we go back to the missed opportunity thing because I think if it's a one no win against El Salvador, we got the three points against Canada. If it is a strange sort of back and forth, there's some probing, there's some on the jo- on the fly adjusting to like, oh, okay, they're attacking this way. We've got to figure that out. We can't let Alfonso Davies have space out wide to combine with Jonathan David. Like if it were a no nil at halftime. That's an okay result if you have an opening win. If you don't get that opening win, which they didn't, then nil-nil at halftime and you're still trying to figure it out becomes more of a problem. So I hope the United States, I doubt they get off to as strong of a start as they did in the Gold Cup with a goal inside the first minute. Shaq Moore not here to score inside the first minute, but hopefully somebody else is. But I think we need to see the United States be up for this one as they were against El Salvador, but then stay up for it and continue to play their game. So basically, I think the best sign is going to be if in like the 20th minute, the U.S. is already ahead, or if in the 20th minute, the U.S. is like sustained, has these sustained attacking sequences fairly regularly. I can't wait, man. These are the games you play for if you're the U.S. men's national team. These are the games you want to be in. These are the opportunities that you want to have a chance to shine in. And we're going to see a big one of those on Sunday. Canada's good. They have talent. They also have weaknesses. The same goes for the U.S. This is going to be a good one. I hope. Fingers crossed. That's a good note to end on. Maybe El Salvador, or El Salvador was a missed opportunity, but Canada is another opportunity. Yeah, so there absolutely. we go. That's how it works. Always another opportunity to make things even better. And again, one point to start qualifying is better than it was last time. Uh, so at least we've got that. Joe Lowry, at least I've got you to talk these things out and make Aww. sense of the things that happened. Uh, anything else before we take a break for the week? I don't think so, man. Enjoy your, well, Saturday off, and then we've got <laughs> yeah, another exactly game on Sunday. Right. But, you know, enjoy your Saturday, hang out yeah. with your wife and your daughter, and <laughs> yeah. it'll be a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll be right back on Sunday. <laughs> I look forward to it. Uh, but, Joe, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me today. You got it, my friend. Listeners, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, hopefully, you feel better. Hopefully, we processed through some stuff, and you did along with us, uh, and that you're not now, like, hopefully, you have fingernails left, is what I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see what happens on Sunday. Uh, hope you stick with us, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> 